the word of the Lord. Loving God, there are some truths that are so big we know we cannot fully comprehend them. But what we glimpse is glorious. Help us to see you in the realities of life and death, in the midst of all that life's experiences brings. And may we find that a seabed for our faith that gives birth to the hope the living hope we have in your name. Amen. Well, you don't have to travel far around our neighbourhood or let alone go into the shops to realise that Halloween is almost upon us. And I'm not too sure what you make of Halloween. At one level, I sort of regard it as a bit like a, another version of Harry Potter. It's just a story, it's fanciful, it gives children a chance to dress up and to uh, have that sort of fantasy space. But it would worry me if people's hopes and view of the world and those realities is shaped by that fantasy. And it certainly would worry me if it's shaped by the Hollywood version of it, which is um, just that. It's just fantastical. It's, uh... But behind it, we often lose some of the deeper truths there's an irony in the way in which Australia now increasingly is being driven, I believe commercially driven, to, to uh, throw ourselves into Halloween. The irony is that it's a Northern Hemisphere festival designed for the end of summer and autumn, just before winter. Now, I know our weather pattern is trying to keep us in winter as long as possible at the moment, but we are certainly not heading into winter. So at a cultural level in the Northern Hemisphere, there was a season at the end of harvest when people would think, we've got to celebrate so long as we've still got some sun left. And there would be celebrations as the land and as communities prepared to hibernate, prepared to go indoors, prepared to settle down. So that was part of the, the cultural festival that came at this time of year. But at a deeper level, Halloween is a Christian festival, as indeed is uh, All Souls Day. Halloween is literally a contraction of All Hallows' Eve, the evening before All Hallows' Day. And All Hallows is a Latin word we're more familiar with as the word saints, All Saints' Day. And that is an important and a wonderful commemoration for us to hold on to. So November the 1st, as I said, is All Saints Day, All Hallows Day. And it is followed immediately by, on November the 2nd, All Souls Day. Now there's an overlap between the two, but All Souls is slightly different in terms of it focuses on those who have died in the faith, but who we recognise are now with the Lord, both seriously important commemorations. Where Halloween has become so lost the plot is this notion that um, uh, all these sort of scary things happen in graveyards and cemeteries, where traditionally it was where lights would be laid on the uh, headstones, 
to remembrate, to commemorate those faithful departed and to decorate their gravestones and places where ashes are laid to rest and so on, which is a far more worthy way to do things. But of course, uh, Hollywood and others gets into that and all sorts of mischief is developed as a result. So let me explain two things around those two days. And this is, to start with, will be seriously big picture stuff because it's an experience, it's a reality that is beyond our comprehension or our experience. So we can only talk about it in a very abstract way. First of all, let me explain the second of the two, the notion of all saints. All saints is the gathering of God's people from the beginning of time into the end of the beginning of time from what the Bible describes as the alpha, first letter of the Greek alphabet, to the omega, the last letter of the Greek alphabet. Although the end is not the end. It's just the end of the beginning. It's such a big picture, it's hard for us to sort of get our heads around it. So somewhere between the alpha and the omega, we find ourselves. We are located in a gathering of God's people throughout the ages across every culture and language and grouping. So we see it glimpsed in Revelation where we have those heavenly gatherings where people with one voice across all the different languages and cultures sing how glorious God is and the work of the Lamb and so on. That's why Revelation is so rich in that sense. So the notion of all saints those who have been gathered amongst God's people is one that identifies us with those with the the bigger picture, past, present and future. The notion of all souls draws us in another dimension, which is between heaven and earth. Again, we can understand earth a bit more because that's where we find ourselves now. We can have the flesh and blood realities we see and experience life on earth in our time, in our place, in our culture, and all that comes with it. So that sphere of earth is as much as our imagination and our understanding and even our language can almost cope with. What we very often misunderstand is the notion of heaven. And actually it was messed up by the, uh, uh, the romanticists in the 19th century who developed a notion of Heaven, you can see it in uh, sort of a lot of the artwork and others that is, you know, sitting around on clouds and playing harps and all that sort of stuff, which is um, totally a misunderstanding of how the imagery is used. Heaven is not where we go when we die. That was a notion that was introduced in the 1900s or even the 1800s, 19th century. Heaven is a present reality here and now. Our existence is actually enfolded within a greater reality of heaven as a sphere. Heaven is where God resides, where God is on the throne, where God's sovereignty is exercised. If you want to take it and use that as a metaphor, heaven is the seat of government for the cosmos. You might describe it as the control centre for the cosmos. That heavenly realm is a present reality 
and it breaks into our life. We glimpse it from time to time. We may encounter messengers who are sent, otherwise known as angels. And there are accounts of people who have, have had encounters with those who have come from that spiritual realm. It is that realm beyond the, the material world that we see and touch and smell um, to the, the spiritual reality, which is no less real, but harder for us to, to comprehend. So that heavenly reality is where we enter into when we gather in church. Our songs, our readings open up little windows into that greater heavenly reality of where God is residing and how God's mission is at work. But we're not there yet. So the prayers that we see are picked up often by the common coupling of heaven and earth. Again, the clearest example of it is in the Lord's Prayer, which we say each week. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's will is done in heaven. We pray that earth will increasingly come into that space and be fully obedient to take delight in the ways and the purposes of God. The future hope, the fullness of the kingdom is described as a new heaven and a new earth that are now bonded together. They are united as one entity. And that's the vision that we have before us in Revelation and it was foretold in Isaiah and some of the prophets in Jeremiah. So the vision will be a come a time when heaven and earth are as one and that would include the gathering together of the saints of God's people throughout the ages as the residents in that heavenly home. So we await that future. So, just going back to where we come from, all saints are the, the people throughout the ages, past, present and future. All souls is our hope of that time when heaven and earth will become one. But we're not there yet. So it raises questions, and it's a very heartfelt question. We all ask this question. For those who have died, died in the faith, where are they now in that space? And that's why I had to do the sort of the big picture stuff to explain that we're not at that final stage. The fullness of heaven has not been completed Well, let me answer, first of all, with two negatives or where they are not. Then I'll move into a couple of passages that gives us some answers as to where they are. Two places where they are not. The first is purgatory. Now, purgatory is a, uh, uh, a fanciful notion that is not found within the Bible. This idea that there is some holding house, some inter. inter Meadery space, some space where people go and God can't decide whether they're going to go up or go down, in all that sort of language. The belief that those who have died are in some sort of space and if those, their wider family, those who come after them, do the right thing, they might be freed from purgatory and released to go into heaven. That is a notion that was uh, rose out of some Jewish um, speculation, some Jewish mythology that was floating around in the time of Jesus, although Jesus doesn't pick it up at all. It was developed in the medieval ages and especially by the medieval church for quite appalling reasons. 
because the medieval church think, thought, well, if people have a fear about where their ancestors, where their family are, maybe we could offer them a way in which they could have assurances if they purchase from the church indulgences. That is to say, they purchase some sort of credit that can be applied to their forebears and that they could then be released from purgatory and go into heaven. And they did big business. It's actually one of the reasons why this Sunday also happens to be Reformation Sunday because Martin Luther said that is appalling. You can't sell indulgences as though you can buy, purchase the well-being of your family and others and release them from purgatory. There is no purgatory. The second place that they are not is in a place where they can be on the inside, contacts on the inside who can put in a good word for us with God. The notion that God mightn't want to hear my prayer, my request, but if I can contact that sort of a intermediary out there, they might be able to put a word for me in the heavenly realm. And it's led to a misunderstanding, and it's a dangerous one, in two senses. First of all, a sense that we pray for the dead. We don't actually pray for the dead. They are actually in a space in which they don't need our prayers and our prayers won't change where they are. That's the notion of purgatory. So in some way we can do a deal with God. We can't do those deals. and That will be a totally false hope and a misuse of the gospel. But secondly, we don't pray to the dead in the sense that we ask them to intercede for us, as I say on the screen, to put in a good word for us. Part of it comes out of um, a misunderstanding of Mary that came from a mistranslation, um, the notion that Mary is in a position to bestow grace, Mary the giver of grace. The actual text in the Bible says Mary who was greatly favoured she received the grace of God. She can't give it, she received it. But that got woven into the Latin translation of the Bible, into the whole cult of Mary that followed. Neither of those is found in the Bible and we should set them to one side. What do we see in the Bible? Well, it's speaking of realities that are beyond our experience. So it often uses some imagery to help us to understand something of the notion. This is a painting of all the saints gathered across cultures, across time, into one great gathering. First of all, some of the questions that arose for the early church. Now, you might recall, and I haven't put the passage up, but you might recall the episode recorded in John's Gospel where Jesus brought Lazarus out of the tomb. And he was seriously late for the funeral, four days late. And Mary came out and said, look, Lord, if he'd come early, he could have stopped this happening. He could have uh, healed him and he wouldn't have had to die. And on that occasion, Jesus spoke to Mary and Martha and to all who gathered and said, having raised the question about, but don't you believe in the resurrection? He said, those who die will never, those who trust in the Lord will never die. And that raised sort of questions of saying, well, what happens then at a later stage where believers were dying? So Paul was asked the question, so 
What's the deal? Have they been overlooked? Are they missing out in some ways, those who have died, as we are waiting for the Lord's return? Now, what Jesus meant was that there's a second, uh, more awful reality of death, which is separation. Death is also can be defined as the separation from the God of life. And Jesus was saying that those who trust in me as the resurrection and the life will never experience that spiritual death of separation from God. They'll always be in the presence of God and in through uh, with Christ. <clears throat> so when Paul is asked this question by the church at Thessalonica, uh, what, what's the deal with those who have died? He wants to give them assurances. He wants you to know what will happen to believers who have died so you will not grieve like people who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, that was their assurance. Some of them had actually witnessed the risen Jesus. We also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring with him the believers who have died. Now, a couple of things to note. First of all, when Christ returns, it won't be for a quick passing visit as he grabs a certain elect number, then disappears again. That notion of a visit in which uh, the rapture occurs and people uh, suddenly disappear from around us and others are left behind, I suspect there's a book or two or a movie around that, uh, is actually not, in the, not the way the Bible describes it. When Christ returns, he's here to stay. He's returning as the King and the Lord into the new earth and this will become the heavens that is part of his whole realm. So Paul tells them about this. we we'll tell you this directly from the Lord. We who are still living when the Lord returns will not meet him ahead of those who have died. Far from it. When the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God, you're not going to miss it. Actually, at a church where I was a, a catechist, many not a catechist, a youth worker, many years ago, Christ Church in Springwood, uh, one of the church members was a dentist. Uh, that wasn't why people remembered him. I'm sure he was a good dentist. Uh, he was also a trumpeter. Um, and when a passage was being preached about when the trumpet shall sound, he didn't tell anyone else other than the minister. But they had a gallery like ours, and at that moment, when they got to that moment, he blasted on his trumpet from the balcony. No one stepped through that sermon. <laughs> the trumpet has sounded. Um, this is a big, decisive moment that will come. Then Jesus, then Paul says, First, the dead in Christ, those who have died before us, will rise from their place of the, the abode of the dead, from their graves. Then together with them, we who are still alive and remain on earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. We would welcome him into this new, this new earth and we will be with the Lord forever. So encourage one another with these words. It's a great passage. Another occasion where Paul was reflecting on um, the realities of life. He was in prison. He was writing this letter to the Philippian church in chains and uh, people were asking him, isn't, it, isn't this rough? Maybe you're going to die as a result of your imprisonment. And Paul was reflecting on that and he says, well, for me, living means living for Christ and dying is even better. 
For if I live, I can do more fruitful work for Christ. That's what my calling is. So I don't really know which is better. I'm torn between these two desires. I long to go and be with Christ, which will be far better for me. The best is yet to come. But for your sakes, it's better that I continue to write these letters to you and I continue to minister to you like the letter to the Philippians as such. But what we can note is Paul's confidence that those who die in the Lord are not separated from Christ. They are drawn into the immediate presence of Christ, which Paul says would be far better for us. It is a place of rest, a place where there is no more anxiety or toil or all that comes with realities of life. It is a place of shalom. Another passage. Just got a couple more I want to use. One, uh, three images that Paul uses to describe what happens with this process of death. And it's beyond our comprehension. So Paul uses three metaphors to help us understand something of it. Uh, each of them actually works for me, so I hope they speak to you as well. The first one is a gardening metaphor. He said, when you sow a seed in the ground, that seed has a kernel, it has a body. And if that body doesn't die, the seed's not going to grow. But when you place the seed in the ground, the kernel of the seed has to die away for the new life to grow forward. Particularly appropriate image for, for spring as we can see that new life emerging in our gardens. So Paul says when you plant a seed in the ground, it doesn't grow into a plant unless it dies first. The body gives way. And what you put in the ground is not the plant that will grow. The seed is not what grows bigger. It's the new life that is released. But only a bare seed of wheat is what's been sown. But God gives it the new body he wants it to have. A different plant grows from each kind of seed. So Paul goes on to talk about if you think about it, there's all sorts of different kinds of bodies. There's bodies for humans, there's bodies for animals, there's bodies for birds, there's bodies for fish. So too, he says, there are bodies that are fit for purpose for heaven. And it is not the same as our own material body for this earth. The glory of the heavenly bodies is different from the glory of of the earthly bodies. doesn't mean to say it's some sort of ephemeral, ghostly sort of body. It's still a tangible body, even more real than this body. But it's animated by the Holy Spirit. It's driven by the Spirit. So Paul continues. Um, this is another passage in uh, 2 Corinthians 5. Paul was at a brush with death. He thought he was going to die, probably an illness. And quite to his surprise, he survived. So he's been reflecting on death and about those realities. Now, the first image we talked about in 1 Corinthians 15 was a seed being sown in the ground. Here, Paul adds two more images in the one passage, and he weaves them together, which is a beautiful mixed imagery. First of all, he says the process of death is like moving out of a heaven, out of a earthly tent that will move into a secure dwelling. Now, anyone who's been camping, anyone who's owned a tent over the years would know that tents do not get stronger with age. They get weaker. They get worn out by wind and rain and sunlight and all that comes of it. And the more you use it, the, the more it wears out. And Paul says, our life, our bodies are like that. 
And Paul at this stage has been beaten numerous times. He's been shipwrecked. He's had an incredibly hard time. He knows that reality of that body wearing out. Now I know that we are all so fit and lively and uh, you know, we have a spring in our step all the time. We wouldn't relate to this imagery at all of our actually warring a little bit worn out on occasions. Great to see you back, Pam. <laughs> we all know that sort of space, that our bodies do get old and we do grow weaker. And Paul says, well, at death, this body is exchanged like a tent for a wonderful dwelling, a heavenly dwelling built by God that will never wear out. But Paul isn't content just with that image, so he throws in another image. And this one is a clothing one. He says, the more we wear clothing, especially favourite clothing, clothing wears out too. And again, I'm the worst of it. You know, we're, I have tucked away jumpers and I know they're wearing thin and everything else, but they just got all those memories, all those... Uh, but those favourite items, like an old jumper, get weaker and less fit for purpose. And Paul's image here, well, death is also like exchanging an old piece of clothing that's seen better days and probably ready to be discarded and being overwrapped with a new clothing, the heavenly clothing. So Paul describes it as uh, verse 2, we grow weary in our present bodies, so we long to put on our heavenly bodies like new clothing, for we put on heavenly bodies. It will not be spirits without bodies, it's actually an embodiment. So we're always confident, even though we know that so long as we live in these bodies, we'll not be at home with the Lord. This is where Paul lands with all his imagery. He says, it isn't just what is happening to us, it is where the space we find ourselves in. The need for a new body is to have a body that is fit for purpose for heaven. And our, our dwelling place, where we end up and truly have that sense of being at home, is only found to be with the Lord. So let me bring these threads together. Three things we do know in answer to the question, where are they now? The first thing is that those who have died in the Lord are in the presence of Christ. And the presence of Christ is in a space in which the blessings of all that's been talked about, the promises of those who are at peace and can be nurtured and can flourish, is in the presence of Christ. It's where that song, be still um, and know the presence of the Lord. Secondly, we know that the best is yet to come. They're in an intermediate state that the fullness of the new heaven and the new earth hasn't arrived yet. So this experience of being in the presence of Christ is being drawn into that heavenly realm, but in the sense of being in the presence of Christ. But sometimes described as an intermediate sleep. Though it appears that those who have died are conscious. Some of the parables and teachings of Jesus suggest that they are able to observe and to watch on. So we have that sense that they're in a space, it's a good space, but it's also a waiting space. They need to wait before we catch up. There's an image that comes at the end of Hebrews 11 which uh, can be paraphrased of all those who by faith have gone before us. 
And it says, and have they received all that was promised? And the writer of Hebrews says, actually, not yet. And one commentator paraphrases it this way. He says, those who have died in the faith are not able to crash the party before us. They can't sort of go in and make a start. We need to catch up with them and we will enter into that state together. Another illustration might be, you know when you go through the airports and occasionally you all those long queues and some people manage to get those express entry ones that bypasses all the queues? The New Testament says there's no express pass into heaven. Those who have died in the Lord are waiting along, waiting for us until we all get reunited and caught and enter into the fullness of the kingdom, the new heavens and the new earth. Isn't that so more life-giving than Halloween? Why would you waste your time in that sort of fantasy when these two great truths, all saints, the gathering of God's people, all souls, that those who've gone before us are resting in the Lord, are in the presence of, of the Lord, and we will be reunited and catch up and together we're entering into the fullness of the kingdom. Now there is cause for hope and for praise. Amen.